Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. We are just a few days away from Christmas when this goes to air. How exciting. I know. I just can't wait for it all to be <laughs> over this year. It's been, um, the last month has been so frantic. I think everyone thinks that the world's coming to an end when it's Christmas time. Yeah, we had a few disasters in the office yesterday uh, to do with administrative things and uh, technical difficulties. And I said to my staff, this is Christmas, guys. This is just how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> it's always crazy. How do you usually spend your Christmas day? Family stuff? Um, yeah, well, either we either do Christmas Eve or late Christmas Day because um, my siblings have other plans with their in-laws, and yeah. so yeah. So this year, I think we're going to probably going to do a picnic. Actually, I think I've decided Ooh. that um, yeah, we might go to Milk Beach on Christmas Eve or Christmas afternoon, depending on just some finalisation between one of my sister and in-laws and things like that. So yeah, it's Beautiful. all going to. What about you, Amanda? We do the family thing. We uh, have both sides of the family in Sydney. So we will be heading across to my sister-in-law's for lunch. And that's always fun. There's little kids around and cousins and all going wild and enjoying their Christmas presents. And then going crazy, not wild. (laughs) (laughs) Sending us crazy, perhaps. Throw them in the backyard, put them in the pool. Uh, And then we'll head back uh, and drop in to see my parents and my siblings. So yeah. Family stuff, and then I think at Boxing Day, we everybody sort of sits back and relaxes and you chill yeah, out at home, yeah, exactly. Get over all the Christmas eating as well the day before, <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, speaking of craziness, why don't we jump in and talk about our strata challenges for this week? Rena, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so recently I had a general meeting where an owner turned up, and on the strata role, we actually had them as a company, and when I asked them, I said, well, yeah, we don't have a company nominee form from you, which has to obviously be received and it has to be on the roll prior to the meeting opening. They said to me, but I've never had to bring a company nominee form ever to a meeting. Like, you know, I've always voted, look at all the minutes, look at all the past minutes from the hmm. past agent. You know, you, you should know that. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but unfortunately you cannot vote because of the fact that the company is not a person and a company has to assign a person to be its representative or nominee as such to be able to vote at general meetings. And so in this case of matter, I suppose, you know, the person was put off and, and not happy. Um, but the problem is I think a lot of agents actually don't understand that a company is not actually a person and therefore someone turning up purporting to be a nominee or being a director, um, the agent can't really take that on, on face value. So I actually did go back to the minutes and, of course, each company that was on the strata roll had never had a nominee and each person who had, who had attended that meeting had just been named as a person. So Goodness. in this case, it was a contentious meeting because um, there were some special resolutions. So this potential person's vote could have, you know, affected the outcome. But in this case, it was lucky that it didn't. But I think it's just one of those challenges that as agents we face when, you know, all agents don't really understand um, how the act works mm. and therefore um, they don't 
really know that a person can't just turn up unless they've given a company nominee form to state that they are authorised to represent to that company at mm. the meet. And that they're listed on the strata role as the company yeah. nominee. Now, the question that I think we've had before on the podcast, Rena, and it's interesting that you raised this because it was only last week that I had the same question asked to me by a client. When a company wants to appoint a proxy, how do they fill in the proxy form? And my memory of our discussion about that was like any other document that's being signed by a company, a company needs to comply with section 127 of the Corporations Act Mm. and ensure that two directors or the director and secretary, if it is not a sole director, secretary, company, are signing that proxy form in the same way a company executes any document. And I think that's often overlooked as well, that if it's not the company nominee turning up, it is a person with a proxy. Often the proxy form is not correctly completed by the company. Yeah, exactly right, Amanda. And I think a lot of people don't realise also when you say about having two directors, most of the time, I mean, not that we ever do a company search, but but I have in some cases because it was necessary to do so (laughs) and contentious and therefore, like, you know that there's only more than one person that's a director. And yeah, so these things can become quite problematic, I think, when people aren't aware of what the requirements are in the Act and people then turn up to meetings and, and they're not permitted to vote. And of course, you know, people don't like being told they can't vote. And mm. I can understand that. I mean, I would probably feel the same way if I was getting conflicting advice. But I think there are some basic things that I think strong managers should be aware of. And this is one of them. Mm, absolutely. And uh, trap for the inexperienced players. So good one to remember. Yeah. All right. Well, my challenge for this week relates to uh, privileged correspondence, and it is a listener question. How should strata managers be storing privileged correspondence amongst the owners' corporations' books and records? So if we take that a step back, uh, what is privileged correspondence? Mm. Well, it's communications that are prepared for the dominant purpose of legal advice. So that's the um, the legal test. Is this prepared for the dominant purpose of legal advice? And we're thinking about things like letters to and from the owners corporation's lawyer, advices from the owners corporation's lawyer, questions that you might have sent, written material, records of file notes if you've had a meeting with the lawyer. And it crops up, of course, when the building is having a dispute, say, with a lot owner or the lot owner with the building. And it's a very common yes question and I don't think we've got into it before on the podcast Rena. No actually no man because I think yeah. um, I mean obviously you and I have dealt with privileged correspondence and I mean when manual systems were being used before you'd have a separate you know manual file where any emails or any advices Amanda were stored and then I mean we used to have a big big sign saying not for searching so mm. that when the staff came out to take the searches um, when we had the boxes and everything they would not take that file. I think electronically it is it is a bit more difficult for people not to make a mistake. So what yeah. we try and do is we we actually make a separate electronic file after we, only when we know there's a search because I suppose there's no reason to, to move things unless they're being searched. So when you know there's a, there's a search happening, then you basically create a privilege file in your directory of the building and then you basically move all your emails into that section and all your correspondence. But I think a lot of the time, Amanda, which I think you and I have dealt with previously is that how does a strata manager know what's privileged? Yep. And I think that's a very important question because most managers don't really know what that means and whether this advice or that email is privileged or not. Yes. And I think 
in the past we've actually asked you to come and look at all the records, especially in certain contentious buildings where we know that <laughs> any email that shouldn't be seen is seen is going to cause us a lot of problems. So mm, Yeah, for sure. It is too easy, I think, for strata managers to say, oh, well, that's from the lawyer, it must be privileged. Now, that's not yeah. the case. If the lawyer is only sending to you a copy of what the lot owner, for example, has sent to the lawyer, well, that's not privileged. You know, the no. lot owner is privy to that correspondence because they wrote it. So it shouldn't be withheld from the file. However, mm. things can get a little bit uncertain where, for example, there is a draft report that's been prepared by an expert. Now, that report ultimately is going to be finalised and it might be sent on to the court or to the lot owner. But when it's in draft, it is a document that is prepared for legal advice. It's a document for the lawyer to look at, for the owner's corporation to have a look at and see if they're happy with, do any of the instructions mm. need to change, be added, what needs to be amended. Now, that draft is going to be privileged. So, that's the kind of thing that can creep in to the files and be shown to a, a lot owner who's in dispute with the owner's corporation and cause some problems. The other thing that's really important to cover off here, Rena, where you say that you're uh, putting documents in a folder, withholding them from a search, that would be only if it is the lot owner who is having the dispute with the owner's corporation is the one doing the search. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're not actually... Um prohibiting it from any other lot owner or someone who's buying a property. No, no, it's only for that person. So they can't see exactly what is being advised by the owners corporation against them or in relation to their matter. That's correct. I think another good um, practice for managers is to actually, there are obviously things that you know that are privileged. Sometimes it even says, you know, on the document that it's privileged. So that's an easy one to to pick up and there are certain things when a lawyer is giving advice about the lot owner or the, the matter in question. But I think anything else that you're not sure of, Amanda, I think what should happen is that I think those documents should be sent perhaps to the lawyer via, you know, like either via Google link or something with there's, there's many documents so that nothing is actually inadvertently um, kept in the file because many years ago in, a, in my previous role, there was a manager who actually accidentally left some things in a file and that owner was coming to do a search. Mm. Um, And unfortunately, there was a lot of problems that resulted as a result because of the fact that, you know, inadvertently some correspondence that shouldn't have been in in that file was actually left in there and that lot owner got to see quite a bit of information. Yeah, it's definitely an area to be careful of. There's a little bit of case law on this. We do have Court of Appeal Authority in New South Wales that deals with privileged documents in strata schemes. So I'll put the link to that case in the show notes. And there's also an article that was written by my practice, uh, Lawyers Chambers, which summarises this stuff uh, a little bit more helpfully perhaps than the Court of Appeal does. So (laughs) I'll put a link to that case in the show notes as well. But a really good question, great topic. Uh, It's not often we come across general strata topics we haven't yet touched on in the podcast yeah. arena, but I think that's one of them well there's always something new man I must say like sometimes you think you've sort of come across everything yeah um, but lo and behold you just never know what crops up that is right that's why we love it all right let's switch over to wins for the week Rena. what is your win well I've just taken over a new scheme and it was fortunate that an owner had agreed um, when we took over to actually allow us, he actually had completed some major common property renovations, mm-hmm. no bylaw. And unfortunately, you know, like there's been a lot of issues in the building because of this. And the previous manager obviously wasn't able to impart the importance of actually making sure that the bylaw was put in place, even though it was retrospective as a common property rights bylaw. Mm-hmm. I think the owners corporation should take whatever steps are necessary because 
in the future, when that owner sells or um, the people that are on the committee aren't there anymore, no one recalls that this person um, actually did the work, then the owner's corporation will become responsible for the yes. um, repair and maintenance of, the, of that property. So I think sometimes people think, oh, and I find sometimes in some buildings, you know, people don't, oh, you know, but he's a nice bloke and, you know, he didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't understand. And I'm thinking, well, be that as it may, people I think sometimes there's that saying where, you know, it's easier to ask for, for forgiveness than to seek permission. So mm. sometimes I think people think, oh, well, if you do it, then later on it's hard to undo versus actually doing it correctly in the first place. And I think owners, corporations and communities should really make sure that any person who does any alterations that are not covered under the standard line of works with general meeting approval do have a common property rights bottle so that the future maintenance and repair is actually undertaken by that future lot owner and the current lot owner. Yeah, absolutely. That would be my recommendation. And it is something that the tribunal does do, in my experience, if an owner who has carried out work without approval is uh, causing trouble or it comes to the attention of the strata committee that this work has happened. And if the owner's corporation decides to file an application with the tribunal to have the common property reinstated, the tribunal often tries to resolve the matter by ordering the owners corporation to convene a meeting and consider a common property rights bylaw. And that essentially cures the breach, if you like, and shifts that responsibility for the affected common property over to the lot owner. And the way the tribunal sees it, well, that should make you happy, owners corporation, because we're now protecting yeah. our position, which is fair enough. And if I always tell clients who come to me on, on either side, a lot owner or a building with this kind of a problem, I say, look, if that's what the tribunal is going to do, then we should take that step ourselves first, either put the bylaw forward, or if you're the owner's corporation, request that the bylaw be put forward and try and resolve it that way before you go off to litigation. Yeah, I think I mean, it's a win-win when the yeah. owner gets to keep their um, renovation and the owner's corporation has a bylaw protecting it. I think sometimes where that may sort of become unstuck Amanda is when an owner has installed an aesthetically you know displeasing thing or something that's really not in keeping with the building and yes. it doesn't matter what bottle you're going to pass it they don't want it there and it's an mm. eyesore or whatever so there are some circumstances where having a bylaw just to confer the rights of um, repairs and maintenance in the future is not sufficient to yeah. quell the concerns when there are aesthetic issues and in place where a building you know where someone can see this you know, I've had someone call something a monstrosity on someone's balcony or whatever it was. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then I suppose the bylaw that's proposed or put up either by the lot owner or the owner's corporation doesn't get resolved because you don't get your special resolution and then it's a matter of which mm. which party's being unreasonable. Is exactly. the owner's corporation being unreasonable and refusing? And then that's a different fight in the tribunal. Exactly. That's another topic for another day, I indeed, think. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. All right. Well, good win there. Good that that was able to go through and that work has now been covered off in that building. The win I have on my list for today is a case. And I do have a habit of listing cases as wins. And I have to say that's not necessarily because I agree with the outcome or I think it's a good outcome. I list them as wins because I think the more cases we have, particularly as our act is only a couple of years old, the more certainty we have uh, in New South Wales when it comes to some issues, which I think as a lawyer have been a little bit unclear in the drafting of our legislation. And this one is a particularly interesting one because it relates to section 110, which is our section that provides for minor works to be approved by the owners corporation or to be delegated for approval to the strata committee. And this particular case related to hard flooring. 
And hard flooring is listed in Section 110 as a type of minor work that if an owner wants to install hard flooring, they can apply to the owner's corporation and an ordinary resolution at a general meeting will be sufficient to permit that hard flooring. Now, in this case, it's called Guram, G-U-R-R-A-M, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. It's a tribunal case decided by a single member. The building in question had a bylaw that essentially banned hard flooring, no hard flooring allowed. The lot owner had installed hard flooring and the owner's corporation had pursued that owner. So Amanda, just to interrupt you, was this bylaw registered before the new act came in or since the new act came in? The bylaw was registered before the new act and when the lot owner came to challenge the bylaw, and I'll get into what the grounds of that challenge uh, was, the owners corporation did make the submission that the bylaw, even though it was passed before the new act, it continued to have effect because there are transitional provisions in the new act that brought old bylaws across. But the the lot owner didn't challenge the bylaw on, on that basis. They challenged the bylaw on the basis that it conflicted with section 110 because because Section 110 says you can have hard flooring if you have an ordinary resolution of the owner's corporation. The bylaw, however, said that no hard flooring was allowed at all in this building. There was a blanket prohibition on hard Mm. flooring. And perhaps a little bit surprisingly, I think, the member agreed with that and the member said – well, if hard flooring is permitted under 110, then an owner's corporation cannot have a bylaw that says anything contrary to 110. They cannot have a blanket prohibition on any of these minor works that are listed in 110. This is something, when I first read the new act, I pointed this out as being confusing and I asked the question of myself and to some of my colleagues, if there is work that's listed in 110 as minor work that is permitted with an ordinary resolution of the owners' corporation and then an owners' corporation can make bylaws about matters affecting common property, lots, as long as they're not harsh, unconscionable or unreasonable, then how does one sit with the other? Which prevails? If you have a bylaw that, for example, says you can't have hard flooring, how does that sit together with 110? And that question has now been answered by this member of the tribunal. In this Garam case, they've said section 110 prevails and you can't outlaw things like hard flooring. But Amanda, can I ask you another question? I mean, just because something is deemed to be a minor, minor work under the Act, so therefore it doesn't require any other type of approval apart from general meaning approval. Yeah. But where where does it say that you have to approve every single thing that's ever been put before you because it's in the Act? I mean, what if someone wants to install a floor with no underlay, no insulation? I mean, how can someone approve that? Now, there doesn't seem to be any um, conditions in terms of an application, so therefore people can submit anything and just because it's on in that section as a minor work, I don't understand how it means you have to approve just because it's included as something that's permitted. Yes. So the thing with this case is that the validity of the bylaw itself was challenged. So the lot owner said, this bylaw is invalid because it conflicts with 110. And the member said, yes, I agree with you. So what remains is 110. And 110 says you make an application and for approval to do minor work, minor work includes hard flooring, and the owner's corporation may or may not 
approve that hard flooring by ordinary resolution and may or may not impose conditions. So you Mm. still have that application process available to you and that is the process to be followed and you still have that opportunity to impose conditions. So for hard flooring, you would definitely be saying things like we must have underlay, it must be five mil regupole or whatever it is that everyone's Mm. using these days, contractors, insured license, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So you are still protected in that way and and the tribunal certainly didn't say if it's minor work, it must be approved. They Mm. said if it's minor work that is listed in 110, you can't outlaw it via a bylaw and you must follow the 110 process. Yeah, so what you're saying is that you can you can still, the terms and conditions still will prevail, but the fact that you have a blanket prohibition on, on flooring or any other minor work that's listed in, in 110 cannot occur. Yes, yep. And I think I have just mentioned there harsh, unconscionable or oppressive being one of the limits on our bylaws and the member did touch on that in the case mm. to say that even if I found that this bylaw wasn't invalid because of a conflict with 110, I would probably find that it was harsh, unconscionable Mm. or oppressive. So really important. A different member in a different situation may have made a different decision, but important for our buildings to be aware of, especially those who do have hard flooring bans. And I can tell you, gosh, in my time as a straddler, I've drafted lots of bylaws that ban hard flooring. Mm. I think, I mean, I suppose it's one of those um, very interesting issues that arises in communal living where, you know, like you want people to have, you know, nice apartments and have wooden flooring. It's more aesthetically pleasing. It's more modern and people, you know, buying more expensive apartments and want to be able to renovate them and, and make them quite appealing. The issue I think sometimes is yeah, communal living and then the impact of noise. And just even last night I had an owner in a meeting say to me, oh, Irina, there's a unit above me and they're just, you know, they've got hard flooring. They're just walking with high, you know, high heels, click, click, click. And sometimes people don't realise yeah. when you're actually walking on floor, flooring that the person below you can can hear it and it can Mm. be quite annoying especially in very early morning or late at night when there's not much background noise and I think these are the concerns that have to be addressed through you know proper insulation and Mm. and other measures and some buildings even have the acoustic engineer is required to actually give a report Amanda before and after and go to the adjoining apartments to see that so some some buildings are really strict on giving approval but making sure owners have to go through quite lengthy compliance requirements with acoustic engineers and, and Regupol and um, yep. apart from the usual licenses and et cetera. So I think it's one of those things where I think we'll, we'll be seeing more about it mm. and perhaps bylaws becoming more onerous in terms of having more conditions to comply with. Yeah, definitely. And if not bylaws, then conditions attached to minor yeah. works approvals. Minor yeah, works. That's what I mean. Sure. Sorry. Once a bylaw yeah. has conferred that to the committee to give approval, yeah, greater conditions are, are included Yes, um, that approval process to occur. You're right. And a lot of the uh, heartache I find with hard flooring and noise, again, uh, like a lot of disputes in strata comes down to lack of communication. So that example mm. of, you know, she's wearing her high heels and she's click clacking around, that's a knock on the door to say, hey, would you mind taking your shoes off when you walk in the door? Mm. You know, that's something we've got hard flooring in our strata apartment where we live and we certainly do that. We're very conscious mm. that we don't have shoes on in the house and if I happen to have to run back in, I've got my high heels and I have to run back in and grab something, then I'm tiptoeing around because hey, I just, I'm very conscious. <laughs> I don't make any noise, I'm the same. Yes, that's right. And that's not hard, you know, to, no. to be mindful of your neighbours. No. Yeah. No. All right. Well, I want to wish everybody Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, how However it is you celebrate, uh, enjoy. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you all, uh, catching up with you, Rena, chatting to you in the new year. Great, Amanda. Merry Christmas, everyone. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today?